Hey, I'm Lika Sumba, and this is our journey across Africa, navigating the intricate landscapes of business, culture, and global influence from the African perspective. Africa Whisperer, telling authentic African stories in a global way. On this episode of the Africa Whisperer. In, in high school, there's always assembly time. So during assembly, there was this grand piano, this grand Yamaha piano, and then the music teacher would always be playing this piano. So just because I resonated so strongly with music, I would always just be fixated on her and what she's doing on the piano. And this one time, I just went past the music department. I just wanted to just touch the piano, right? I mean, it was this, this the piano I wanted to touch actually which was at a smaller scale. And the 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 teacher at the time, I remember um, responding to me very harshly and then just saying to me that I cannot touch the piano because I cannot afford it. And I just remember how those words really stuck with me and it made me so aware the, the, the divide really and how I was really on the lower side of the, I would say the, the food chain because she was right. I could not afford the, the piano, but remembering how that made me feel um, curated this sort of like trauma and for the longest time I did not want to play that instrument but it is also something that fueled me into not wanting another black child to feel as though they cannot play an instrument they cannot um, access um, music because of where they come from. My guest on this episode of the Africa Whisperer has what can only be described as audacious faith. She's been knocked down but keeps getting up again and each time she rises higher. When she was told that she couldn't touch the piano at school because she wasn't able to afford one, she started playing the trumpet at the Salvation Army. When she put on a classical music event that included an orchestra, choir, sourcing rehearsal space, paying for expensive venue and pulling off the show, only to have the headline sponsor go back on their word after the show, leaving her with an insurmountable amount of debt, she got up again. When she lost her mom, who was her great support in an untimely way, she cried, but got up again. Today, Fente Pizza is a shining light in the classical music world. She owns an orchestra, is a conductor. She's bringing classical music to a whole new demographic and is courageously working to bring African instruments into the orchestra. And she's only getting started. Ofrenta Peter, it is so um, awesome to be able to have this conversation with you on the Africa Whisperer for multiple reasons. First of all, you are the person who designed the Africa Whisperer logo. So I'm really happy. I think Great. that it's kind of full circle that you're here. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and second mm-hmm. of all, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting you, I believe, in like 2019. And I remember from that first time that I met you, I was really just so amazed at your vision, your plan and your passion. You were so relentless and fearless, even though you were going through one Mm -hmm. of the hardest times in your life. And now just watching you grow and seeing all of the awesome barriers that you're breaking and ceilings that you're shooting through. I'm just really privileged to have you on this episode of the Africa Whisperer. Welcome. Hey, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. And what an introduction, right? Um, And it's also an honor for 
for me to to be here because I've seen how you know um, the show has grown and for me it has just been such a blessing to see that in whichever capacity whether creatively or because I just really believed in you um, I, I see it blossoming into what it is now and um, so it, it's also really a full circle moment for me as well. With regards to this podcast we really love to give people insights about and talk to people that are doing incredible things in the continent um, in the African continent you know we need to be able to celebrate our stories and I feel that when it comes to the business sector to entrepreneurship specifically to tech to the creative industry all of that people like you are really reshaping global views about Africa in such incredible ways but I want to track back to the beginning of your life and um, for people who might not be aware of your story because I think it's it's mm-hmm. just a story of destiny really um you were born in in 1992 and to put this into context for people uh, who might not be aware of South Africa's history that was a year after former president Nelson Mandela um may he rest in peace was um released from prison and it was just before the 1994 elections which would have been South Africa's official first democratic elections where black South Africans were able to be able to vote and people of color in South Africa in general um so you being born at that time i think that you formed part of the born freeze am i correct <laughs> I'm just trying to remember. Um, well, I'm, I'm like only uh, two years shy of of, of yeah. that, but I because the the born fees actually were born in 1994, but wow. I guess I'm still on the on a similar band um, or wagon, right? Because I mean, 1992, we were preempting this great freedom that was. Um, sort of like making its way to, to South Africa as really well deserved, right? So I was born in 1992 in Pretoria and interesting time because I was also born in a family of creatives, um, but also academics. So during that time, my grandfather, my grandmother were very stern about education, right? So, and church. So it was really just education and God, nothing else, nothing in between. And my mom being very forward thinking in her in her ways so it fit to raise me to be an individual right so i was never told by my mom that i should be this or should be that for me it was just important to to tell her which school i wanted to go to and what i wanted to be speaking again on the on the whole idea of freedom for me even before i knew about the democratic freedom i think i was really given the space and the the the, the upbringing that allowed me to be completely free even before knowing what freedom really was and you know you you mentioned your grandfather and I'm so glad because I wanted to bring that into the conversation if I remember correctly your grandfather passed away when you were 18 months old but he was actually yeah. making music he was creating music he was a conductor or something along those lines and so it's really mm-hmm. as though he passed the baton on to you from what you've heard from the elders in the family from his um siblings and and so forth what stories have you heard about what he about what he has been what he had done I mean I think also especially because when we think about the creative industry like the theater the arts mm-hmm. music and so forth they, that really played such a huge role in helping South Africa get uh, into its place of freedom as we saw with people like John Carney and so forth so with your grandfather mm-hmm. can you talk to us about what you know about his career um 
and what it was that he was doing. Yeah. So my, my grandfather was a formidable force in the jazz space. So he was a trumpeter for a jazz band called the Jazz Maniacs. So the Jazz Maniacs were, um, you know, in, in their prime, really instrumental part of the jazz space in Sophia Town, Kofifi and stuff. So he was close friends with the likes of your Huma Sigellas, your Abdullah Abrahams, and really the big guys really in, in the jazz space. So from what I hear, he also wrote and arranged the music that they played in this band. So in a way, my gift really came from, I would say, my granddad, right? Because I didn't get the opportunity to really grow under his wing because he passed away when I was 18 months old. So I hear that he was very instrumental in the creative liberation really of South Africa because at the time, all we had was art. So even from the fashion to the music, we were very deliberate about who we are in spite or despite the, the economic challenges or the inequalities that were happening around us. So I would say that my grandfather was really, I believe, relentless also and resilient, especially at that time. And to be a lead trumpeter um, and uh, of this band that I speak of, and he he also had uh, a spinal cord condition where he he had like an arching back. So, like his his brothers and his cousins and all of the other boys in the family were leaning more towards the manly stuff, like going into the mines or fixing stuff, he was given the opportunity to choose music and education. So, which was, I believe, a great choice because had it not been for that, the story would not be written. Whew, I love that. That's such power. I mean, it must be uh, such a, a weight that you know that you carry and a responsibility to know that you are literally mm. um, standing on the backs of your ancestors. We hear that t- that term all the time, but you quite literally. And and it's also really clear that yeah. it's in your DNA, your, it's in your blood, your grandfather's mm. That clearly runs so strongly through you. So um, that's really awesome. Mm. And now moving the story a little forward, the first time if I understand that you thought that, okay, you wanted to go into the classical kind of music side, was this with, with the Salvation Army mm-hmm. Band? Can you talk to us about that, um, how that all happened and what their role was in, in the community in general where you grew up? The, the Salvation Army was the the heart and the core really of our religious life in my family. So my grandfather is the one who actually introduced the entire family to the Salvation Army because before that we were Presbyterian and Methodist, I believe. So due to the musical involvement and I, I would say the, the richness in music of the Salvation Army, my granddad was like, okay, this is the church that we're actually going to be a part of, right? And then so I, I started playing the, the trumpet from the age of 12 and again South Asian Army being the Salvation Army came with the whole um, idea of giving back so the instruments even that we were playing at the time were instruments that were donated to the to the church so because of that it fostered the space to allow us to learn at no cost mm-hmm. so at, at, at 12 I was a young girl looking at this brass this militant very stoic brass band playing each and every Sunday and I was like hang on why have I not seen a girl like myself playing in the band mm-hmm. and again being as overly ambitious as ever I was like actually I want to be a part of that so the minister at the time announced that you know on Tuesday I'll be having rehearsals for each and every person who ever wants to learn how to play they must come Tuesday in the afternoon and then I'll teach them how to play so um, Major Shedrick and Jangasi you know gave me the trumpet and was like okay I'm going to teach you the C scale so we started playing the C scale with all of the three valves and he, he, he taught me not 
not only how to play, but how to position myself. So the sitting, um, how you sit, how you place your chest, how you place your hands is very important with this instrument, right? And then from there, I, I, I just had this undying love for music because now I was growing an understanding of all of these notes and what is happening. So it really opened my eyes to the possibility of what can 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 happen. But I did not get the, the dream of being a conductor from there. It was just me being part of church and doing churchy stuff, which is really um, rooted in giving back. I find it interesting, but not surprising <laughs> that you are playing the trumpet. Because you're mm-hmm. like, why are there no other women doing this? I don't understand. But to no offense is to know that that is exactly <laughs> yeah. your DNA. You always, you always like question, you're kind of like, exactly. why would this happen? So now you're, you're playing the Salvation Army, you're playing the trumpet. You're obviously learning so much in terms of discipline. What would you say that you learned while playing with the Salvation Army Band from life lesson perspectives that has really helped shape who you are in terms of a person and in terms of your work ethic? The first thing that I can think of is character, right? So there's a certain character that you have to have to have because, uh, again, like I was saying, you are given this instrument, right, that is not really yours. So what you always need to make sure is that the next person is going to use this. They have to find it in a better condition than we left it, right? So that was always the first thing that, yes, you are given the, the, the instrument and the space and all that to to use the, the instrument, but you need to make sure that you, you take care of it. So there was a responsibility head on, like from the get go, that you are responsible. So this is your instrument and you're responsible for it, right? And then the second thing was time. So it was very important for you to, to keep time because you had a limited time given to you with, when it comes to the instrument. So if you are using it on Saturday and then someone else is using it on Sunday, you need to make sure that the time you have to use this instrument on Saturday, you, you use it very, very wisely, right? Another thing that I learned was the ministry, right? So the slogan of the Salvation Army is saved to serve. So you learning how to play this instrument, you given these skills, these life skills that are rooted in music is so that you can impact the next person. So if you... Um, don't really impact the next person. It's almost like oh, there was there is really no point in the Salvation Army playing the the active role that they they are tasked to play. Actually, right. So I also learned the the importance of being ready for whatever. So I mean, Salvation Army, we were always ready to march. So we had these marches where we would go out in the community and then recruit people. So speak about God, speak about Christianity. And then if if even if it's 20 people that we're talking to, there has to be one of them who's converted. So I guess my go-getting spirit comes from that because I always ensure that in a, in the many doors that I knock on, there has to be one that kind of opens. So it, it really is a Salvation Army mentality that you are not done until there's that one door or that one soul rather that you saved from the lessons and I guess the the, the skills that they, they teach us or they taught us at the time. Also, like at the time when you were in high school now, I believe that this happened when you were in high school if I'm not mistaken, you had actually, mm-hmm. uh, you had wanted to play the piano but you were blocked off access from it uh, i would love if you share that story with the audience i'm um, also again to set the context that although by now obviously mm-hmm. south africa is, is, is in its new democracy everybody's talking about oh it's the rainbow nation you know from the outside in it seems as though everything is going well in south africa but there was still quite a lot of divides especially economically and especially for black people in south africa so talk to us about what happened around this piano story really is 
is an analogy for what was going on in South Africa still at that time. The whole story of the piano, so I was in high school, right? And then in, in, in high school, there's always assembly time. So during assembly, there was this grand piano, this grand Yamaha piano, and then the music teacher would always be playing this piano. So just because I resonated so strongly with music, I would always just be fixated on her and what she's doing on the piano. And this one time, I just went past the music department. I just wanted to just touch the piano, right? I mean, it was this, this the piano I wanted to touch actually, which was at a smaller scale. And the 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 teacher at the time, I remember um, responding to me very harshly and then just saying to me that I cannot touch the piano because I cannot afford it. And I just remember how those words really stuck with me and it made me so aware the 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 divide really and how I was really on the lower side of the I would say the the food chain because she was right I could not afford the the piano but remembering how that made me feel um curated this sort of like trauma and for the longest time I did not want to play that instrument but it is also something that fueled me into not wanting another black child to feel as though they cannot play an instrument they cannot um, access um, music because of where they come from so that was um, also to give context this is a school that I had to travel each and every day at half past five to to ensure that I make it to this assembly so it was a um, great education but it 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 you know, this incident made me aware of the fact that I am not as equal as the rest. Mm, sure. That is so powerful. Um, you know, and I and 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 it, it even just makes us always think that even when there's great change and awesome things going on, there are still a lot of things in society that uh, generally have to be ironed out. So thank you so much for um, just sharing that. So now I'm curious, wh- where did this idea about, OK, I want to start an orchestra. Like, how do you get to the place where you're like, you know mm-hmm. what, I want to start an orchestra and I want 35 mm-hmm. people. <laughs> you know in the orchestra so where did (laughs) this idea come for you like where did it drop in your spirit again being the overly ambitious young girl I was when I was 12 years old and wanting to join this fully uh, male brass band I, I had this idea after having gone to various choir competitions, right, um, where these young people from various schools would be given prescribed music. So this was like from your Petrucci's, your Mendelssohn, your Mozart, and they would actually compete at national, regional, and, and local level. So after just hearing them sing, I had this idea of imagining them at a bigger um, space, such as Sydney Opera House, right? So I then got a few of them together, and then I was like, let's actually meet on Saturday. And then we met on Saturday. I I had some music scores printed and it was really just this jam session because I was just trying to gauge where their voices are right so I was like you know what you guys sound amazing is this something that you would want to do they were like yeah I think they also love the community that I had fostered for them because it was like yeah now we can meet on Saturdays and actually do what we like doing and then I was like okay let's actually meet every Saturday so the next Saturday came and I had this imagination and in my ear I, I heard instruments right as they were singing and I reached out to my friends and the brass band of the Salvation Army asking them if they would want to join us the next rehearsal. They came through and again, jamming, you know, a trial and error. It sounded beautiful with just brass instruments. And then I was like, mm, I imagine a softer tone. So I imagined 
strings i imagine your violins and your cellos so i spoke to the guys i was like hey guys do you guys know of anyone who plays these instruments from some of your friends or whatever and they're like yeah definitely we will definitely um reach out to some of our friends i think this is something that they would love to do again young people just being about wanting to to be in the same space where they can create music so i was like okay cool let's meet the the following saturday and the following saturday came and then, I mean, as these as these um, instrumentalists were taking out their instruments from their music cases, I realized that okay, now this is nineteen people who have their instruments out, and then there's also a sixteen member wow. choir on my left. Who's going to conduct this, right? And then I was like, ah, oh, shucks, offensive. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time, when you come up with questions, you are you are generally the answer to it. And I. I had to use my muscle, my, my muscle memory, having seen how the conductors or the band masters rather in the church conduct. And then after that rehearsal, I was like, shucks, I need to now learn how to really do this properly because otherwise it would be a disservice to these musicians who are um, looking to me as a leader to really know what I'm doing, to not know what I'm doing. So that's where um, the whole orchestra and choir idea came from. It was so organic that I am not even joking when I say that it was not part of the plan. So first of all, when it comes to conducting, I feel as though the little that I know about playing a musical instrument, I played, I had a a short stint. It was fantastic, but it was short. Um, I don't think I had the discipline. (laughs) to be able to continue all the time. So when I, you know, when I think of um, instruments and stuff, um, I I know for me, piano was quite a lot to learn. It was enjoyable, but it was quite a lot to learn. And I know like, for instance, like the violin and so forth is really tough to learn. So there's there's that aspect of it. But now Mm -hmm. you as a conductor, you've got to be able to hear and understand everything that is happening all the different instruments all the different sections how does that how do you even train yourself to be able to do that and and also did you ever get any kind of mentorship around it because you you fell into conducting basically yeah um so even with the having fallen into conducting i i I knew that it is such a an elite art form um i I knew that i had to get help i knew that i I needed to get someone who who knew more than me to actually assist me and hold my hand so i reached out to herman gruten who is um, at the time was the the conductor of the the um, University of Pretoria Philharmonic Orchestra, and he also has like this illustrious um, conducting career from from um, Europe and all that. So he came to South Africa with his wife to sort of like give back. So he's quite uh, a, an important name, right? And he don't he doesn't just conduct or teach or or mentor anyone. So I reached out to him and he wanted to meet me, and he met me, and he was okay. Tell me what your story is, and I told him who I am and what my story is and what my hope for Africa is in terms of conducting, now seeing what the power of that really could do, right? And then um, he, he, he essentially taught me everything that he knows. So he taught me how to um, read a score, how to analyze a score, and also how to develop an ear for, for, for music. So in conducting, it is such a, the process is more important than the product. So you can literally go months just for a show that will be like less than two hours. So it's the same principle that I would say if I had to put in context that Beyonce uses where she, she took four months for dance rehearsals, four months for band rehearsals, for a two-hour show, and that was Coachella and um, Beachella. So it's 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 similar to conducting where you have to get to a point that where you are absolutely 
comes with, with the score and the music and you have to know each and every running note that all of the instruments are playing so that during rehearsals you can actually catch that mm, the flute sounds a little bit flat or they're not playing the, the, the running notes as they are written or they are not attacking the notes as they are written so that those are some of the things that I had to learn from Herman. And mind you, Herman's um, style of teaching, he did not look at me as a girl, right? So he, we went to like really difficult pieces that I'm just like, yo, these are the new type of musicians or um, music rather or the repertoires that have destroyed a lot of careers where you you have to have a lot of grits really like to, to go for your 1812 Tchaikovsky's Overture and, 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 and all of those things. So it was important for me to have a mentor who knew more than me and I guess also dealt with um, a lot of the things that I was I, I believe protected from dealing with right so I, I I have a mentor who has like a lot of experience in the space of music but also he's been through a lot of stuff so he knew how to teach me to not make um, a lot of mistakes and now um, when you talk about having a mentor who is able to, to protect you and, and to teach you from not making mistakes and so forth, I think that one of the things that I, one of the questions I have around even having a mentor like him who was globally renowned, obviously he, he's white, yeah. you know, and the, the classical yeah. theater world, the classical music world is, is predominantly white people. You don't really find many black people or African people within it. Obviously that's changing. So having him as the person who... You, where you could, you, when it came to dropping his name, <laughs> did that help at all? Because you know, we we always use the tools that we have, yeah. um, especially in that world that would p- perhaps not open the door to a young mm-hmm. person who is black, who is African. Did he? Did, did that mentorship also help in that way? Absolutely, it did because. In the in the early stages, right, there were a lot of people that I reached out to who it's either they left my messages on read online or they just did not respond or some of them just were like not um we're not available to teach you because of various things. So when Herman took me in again, like I said, he does not just teach anyone. So it was a big deal that okay, why is he teaching this young black girl who mind you, I don't have any musical experience in terms of going to an institution. Like, I don't have a music degree, so it was also a hang-on with she type of thing. So from the get-go, it was all it was always a who is she. But because of Herbin and the power that his name possesses, it has really allowed me to be in spaces where people don't even have to see me pick up my baton. They just know that, okay, you are Herbin Gruson's mentee and student so it means that you are really good like we don't even have to to ask you a lot of things so that has allowed me a lot of access and spaces that i did not even dream i could really be um, a part of so it was really important to to have them also be able to answer some questions because sometimes he would tell me that people would call him and ask if he really is my mentor because i mentioned his name interview so they really just try to check for me and vet that I'm, I'm I'm legit and which is kind of odd right because I'm just like why would people do that but I also understand because of how elite the classical music space is not just anyone can make can make it through so I, I, I kind of understand why people were checking for me and making sure that my story really holds ground. Mm. And, you know, um, just another aspect, um, moving forward on your journey, one of the things about you, again, we keep saying about you just being 
your life is like having an audacity of faith. That's the way that I, I kind of summarize it. And you mm. uh, had this uh, wonderful mm -hmm. idea, which you actually executed, um, of having a show um, at one of the bigger theaters in, in Johannesburg in South Africa. You know, I would love for you to share the story and just the lessons that you learned, because I feel that it resonates so much with, with the creative industry in terms of learning certain lessons, um, but it's also life lessons that we can learn across the board. Mm -hmm. um, so I had my first big show in 2019, right? Um, and then again, I wanted to showcase this orchestra, this all-black orchestra and this this um, phenomenal choir, right? Um, Anchored Sound, and I wanted to showcase them in this theater, the Mandela Theater um, in, jo in Johannesburg. And you know, when you get that first yes, after knocking on so many doors and getting a lot of no's, you kind of cling to it. So I believe that at the time I was so tethered to the product. I was like, you know what, I need to make sure that this show is top notch and all that. And then I did not ensure that in terms of the admin, I can really be certain that even before we go on stage, all of those things are taken care of. And I guess being really trusting in the space that not a lot of people give us opportunities or not a lot of people are like, you know what, I'll actually fund that. Is that all you need? So I got that from the set sponsor. And I mean, after putting on the show and things were beautiful, it was great. And again, having this team of musicians who looked to me and was like, wow, you did it. You actually gave us the platform to be in a space that we've never been in. Um, for me, it made me feel like, wow, I did something. But then after the show, then the set sponsor was nowhere to be found. So obviously with that, now you're having service providers and musicians um, looking for their money as they should, right? Because I mean, they were talking to me. They were not talking to the sponsor and um, I'm the person who sold the dream to them. So it left a huge dent in a lot of people who really believed in me, I would say. For them, it was really more than just a booking. They believed that Offense is going to make our dreams to perform in these platforms where we don't really get um, this access. So it was really disheartening and heartbreaking to be disappointed by someone who gave me the first yes, and I and, and I hang on to that. So the lesson in that, I guess, was to ensure, which is something that we don't really get uh, or are not privy to in the music space or the creative space is that we don't know the economics of the art, right? We all all we know really is creating and performing at the highest level. So I learned that hang on, before you even go into this the the what is this theater space or whatever it is, you need to make sure that all things like the ground, everything on the ground is covered. So that's the one thing that I I, I learned to to just not be so trusting. Yeah, that's so true. Um, unfortunately, we live in the yeah. world that we do. And, and, you know, I just keep on thinking about the fact in general, when when people have debts, it, it's very taxing. But I can't even remember, I can't even, pardon me, imagine being, um, you were like maybe 26, 27 at that time and Correct. carrying this debt and having people call you and you're kind of out there alone. Mm. And you're very petite. <laughs> You know, if people see your pictures, you're like pretty tiny. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, quite yeah, small, so, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're pretty small. So I, I just like, uh, you know, for you, how, how did that even affect you from um, mentally? Because that must have been a lot. That must have been so tax taxing. And how did you manage to, to get yourself out of that uh, situation mentally so that you can move on with your career? I mean, for for me, it was not just the show, right? Because a few months prior to that, I think really two months before that, 
I had lost my mother, right, in in a very sad way, and it was really untimely. So to have this show go a like go sideways. It made me feel as though I had failed, right? And I had internalized it, and then I was just like, "Shucks, this is the one thing I felt as though um, should be a thank you to my mother for all the sacrifices that she made, and also allowing me to be a creative, especially in the time where most parents would be pushing their kids to mm-hmm. to do accounting, to do IT. She was very supportive of me being in in the creative space, like to so the fact that she would be the one who would be like, "Okay, what what do you need?" For rehearsals, are people um, is everyone needs to be there? Do they have enough money for taxi? And then she would literally make provision for 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 all the people who need to come to rehearsals to actually have taxi fare and all that. So it it for me it was more than just the the sponsor letting me down, and obviously people calling me, and obviously people will will will, will call you names and this and the other. So. It took uh, a huge dent, like it made a huge dent on my mental and I think I would say emotional health for the longest time. I didn't want to come back to music, to be quite honest. And I had popped this entire dream um, so far away. And I was like, you know what, let me just go back to corporate and then just pursue this architecture. What is this architecture profession? Because I have the degree and all that. That's what I went to school for. And I really wanted to stay low for the longest time. So I, it's something that I'm still working on because the, the idea of, feel like you're not good enough or even the fear of failing even when things are going right i have that i always have one eye up when things are actually going okay and i'm just like who am i you know are we not repeating the same thing that happened at the echoes of time so it's it's something that i'm working on because it really made me feel like i can never be um good enough even when people want to invest in the things that i do i always am like "Mm, but really why me so again, this, the, it, it's a bit of the spirit of self-sabotage that I am I'm working, I constantly have to work um, through because of that incident. Well, Ofenza, thank you very much for just being so candid and, and, and open and vulnerable and sharing that. I think that um, a lot of people will be touched, whether they're in the creative industry or at any stage in their life, just for you being honest. Because I think that the feelings that you have mm-hmm. were were and still are very real. <laughs> Um, and they're feelings that a lot of us um, have, but we, yeah. you know, we can't always put it into words the way that you have. Um, and now, I, you know, I wanted to shift more into the the ecosystem of classical music and the world of theatre and and what helps make it thrive. Um, I heard you um, in in another interview. <laughs> you spoke about how in Europe, when it came to theatre, it was really such a part of people's communities. Versus in 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 Africa, it's not so much a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the statement that I. I often make is that you know in Europe the entire family goes to support theatre so from Thursday to Sunday you'll find that five member family will get into their car and go consume um, theatre productions you know and that's why you have these long-standing uh, productions such as the likes of Don Giovanni, La Traviata, Lenosa di Figaro, um, Carmen, uh, Othello being being projects or, or, or um, yeah, projects really that constantly come every season because of the fact that people who actually consume the art understand that them supporting it fuels back into the country's economy, which now gives back to the to the art uh, economy. 
So I would say that, unfortunately, in SA, we, we, we are more fixated in supporting the, the gig culture of things. So we don't understand that with theater, if a ticket is, say, um, 800 rand, because that would be the equivalent of an international, an international theater play, right? Um, you find a lot of people who would not want to pay that money because for them it's like, mm, that's a lot of money for me to put into something that I'm only going to see once. But without understanding that, hang on, this is actually something that's going to allow this play to continuously return in, 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 in this theater. So that's the unlearning that has to happen with a lot of people where they don't understand that theater has this economy to it that actually uh, assist in the in, in the greater running of the country so that's what i'm also trying to install especially my peers because my peers don't understand theater right that's why it has been so important for me to drive this narrative that theater is cool like we can be in theater and do an electro house concert we can be in theater and do like an ama piano or pop or urban type of repertoire and then it's still cool so that's the i i would say part of my vocation as well to allow people to understand the importance of really being fully vested in theater and knowing what uh, shows are playing where and why it is important for us to go watch them. No, I think, you know, um, we globally, especially in the last, I'd say, two years, um, what has been happening in general is that everybody's been talking about the fact that representation matters. But when you look at the, let me say, if we look at music as a whole, um, obviously African music has exploded globally and, you know, just saluting all of the, the artists, the talent, the managers, everybody that is really just putting Africa on the map in that way. It's, it's incredible. Um, uh, but... So, so music, like yeah. popular culture music has really exploded globally. So we never have a situation where people are like, oh, we need to see more black people in general around the world making music. Or, oh, we need to see more black or African people. You know, we're at that stage now where it's there. But in the classical musical world, it's not so much the case where we see it so much. It's not really in our faces. I'd say even other classical arts, uh, when you look at like ballet and so forth, we still are celebrating, yeah. like in, in the classical music space, yeah. we're celebrating offense we're like oh she's black she's young she's female she owns an orchestra and she you know and she conducts you know um in with with ballerinas and so forth we also are still celebrating like oh this there's this black ballerina and so forth you know we have a way to go where that's concerned my question is when it comes to the world the classical music world i think one of the things that's a barrier for somebody who's kind of on the outside um looking in is that whenever i hear anything about classical uh, music it's always named and they're awesome names you know it's like people like Beethoven and all of that like those are the people that we hear nothing wrong with that at all but we haven't seen or heard or we're not hearing enough in public about African uh, you know works in that in that space so have you come across any African works yeah. that um, you know that really inspired you along um, that really spoke about African narratives because the classical theater world mm -hmm. the classical music world is really about storytelling so have you come across any of this at all yeah I mean you know when I really decided to 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 be full throttle with with this conducting um, with this conducting thing right I was like if I'm really going to do this then it has to be um, from the point of view of wanting to celebrate Africa and the arts. So I was very intentional that I want to get into looking at works that are um, either of African descent 
or fully African. So the the the, the first work that I was really crazy about was Mzilik, Professor Mzilik Asikubalo's um, which is an entire opera that speaks about the life of Shaka Zulu. So from um, his, 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 his childhood to his teenage years to when he became, you know, this great king, right? But also with the themes surrounding that and then to the very end, you know, his death. And then while I was looking at that music, I was like, hang on. But the style of, of how this is written is in the same style as if I were to be watching um, Mozart's Requiem, right? And then I was like, if um, if anything, I would want to sort of like bring forth the idea that Africa actually has the potential, right? It it has the ability to to write operas, to write oratorios. So when I came into contact with Mzilias Kumala's work, I wanted to know more works and more creatives um, and more arrangers, not just in South Africa, but in the in the the entire diaspora. So I became also interested in the language that is used when we when we write operas. Obviously, the the the, the works that I speak of is in Isizulu. So I became more um, interested in what other works exist that is written maybe about Muramansa, right? What other works are written about um, or in, in Kiswahili or in um, you know, a Senegalese language. So I, I became more interested in, in what really is out there in, in Africa. And I was like, if we don't have arrangers or if we don't have people who understand the the dynamics really, and I would say the signs of orchestration, whatever, I wanted to be the barrier to bring that forth. So that has been really my, my calling for, for increasingly for the past few months to really be flat-footed and intentional about having it be fully African. So essentially speaking Africa. Mm, I love that. And even um, w- when I think about that, I just love that you, you, you really have such intent about the, the role and the legacy that you want to be able to leave and the, to leave and the things that you want to do and achieve in terms of putting Africa front and center in the classical music mm-hmm. world. I'm also very curious about the instruments, right? Because I, I guess one of the reasons why um, for the longest time we've not seen many black people, African people and so forth involved in orchestras, it's always a cost thing. I mean, owning an instrument, going, you know, it's always like a cost factor but it's not such a bad thing when you consider the fact that in Africa as you know we're very musical uh, kind of people so an instrument is like instruments are all around us and we also have our um, like our own um, African instruments do these ever get used in any of the any of the orchestras that you conduct at all Um, and I mean I know that you can't answer for big places like the Sydney Opera House and so forth but do you think that there's a space in that where there will be like okay to include like a the African chora or the talking drums or that kind of thing like how does that all work what are your thoughts around that and any experience that you've had Actually interesting enough the recent show that I did about a couple of weeks back I had this grand idea right so I got this brief right from this client who was like offense imagine if Beyonce was to come to you and say that she wants to do Coachella in Africa how would you go about it and then I was like shucks I mean that's that's a mouthful how would I go about an African Coachella so I was like obviously I would look at how I would juxtapose the the instruments right in the orchestra and put African instruments because otherwise why are you coming to Africa right so I had 
three core players who are originally from Gambia as well as um, Senegal, right? I had mm-hmm. Jali Keba Suso, I had Sifo Kanute, I had Mamadou Mamado, um, manning the, the core front of the, the instruments, right? And then I had this entire West African percussion section of your, your Ndundun drums, your Sabah drums, your Tunkunes. So I had this entire representation, right, of on the left, there was this classically trained orchestra that knew how to read music. They've been playing your Beethoven, your Mozart, your Tchaikovsky's, your Sibelius. And then I have these African instrumentalists who don't know how to read music, but they understand rhythm. They also understand the spirit, really, of Africa when it comes to music. So the challenge, I would say, was how do I bring the two worlds together? So most of the time, I had to relate to these musicians and show them how I conduct so that they know which note they land on, where to start, where to end. And because of that, I saw the dynamic power, really, of um, innovation when it comes to orchestras, because that's something that has never been seen, right? I've seen, obviously, now with the exploration of Africa and the arts and um, with the likes of Black Panther, how... The, the orchestrator for the for, for, for the music looked at how he would include six talking drums, right? And that created such a special effect, right? Like it was like shots. I'm hearing this very classical orchestra and even in their phrasing and their approach and their playing, very classical, but then there's these six talking drums. So that also is something that highlighted or opened my eyes to the possibility of what is possible. So I would say from a conducting point of view, it is possible, but we also need conductors and arranges who are as daring as the likes of myself and you know said conductor I mean said arranger for 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 the first Black Panther Ludwig so um that really is what it takes oh, I really love everything about this I I'm just really I, I I actually have a strong sense that very soon the world is really going to be celebrating you because um you're you're definitely one of the people just spearheading so many things and you're so young still. You know, just in closing, I, I was trying to do some research to kind of find out about the business um, and the, the amount of revenue that can be generated within the classical music sector. Um, we always hear about, um, you know, more popular music and how much money can be made in movies and so forth. Um, and so the, the latest... Um, that I was able to find was that um, in North America, uh, the revenue for the classic for classical music, uh, classical music revenue holistically was one hundred forty five point nine million dollars in Europe, one hundred thirty five point eight million dollars in Asia, um, seventy nine point two million dollars um, in Latin America, nineteen point seven million dollars, and then the rest of the world three point three million dollars. Now it says a lot of things. First of all. These numbers sound great, but we know that even in America, the actual music that's outside of classical music, they one artist is making this revenue. So <laughs> we already know that yeah. um, the numbers yeah. always already show that there's a small there's a small pie when it comes to the classical music. But now when I see North America, Europe, Asia Pacific, Latin America, rest of the world, three point three. 3.3, that means Africa falls under the rest of the world <laughs> with everybody else, you know, that has not been mentioned. That's a small amount, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in, in order to grow uh, the creative sectors across the board, one of the things that has that has become really important is firstly being able to generate audiences, which I think that having somebody like you is mm-hmm. awesome. It generates audiences and people who are like, young like you to be interested. Um, and second of all, also getting investment from the private sector and then third of all, being able to get the government to support. 
So let's imagine that, Offender Peter, you are the ambassador for classical music in Africa, and you have this opportunity to speak to, I don't know, you know, to somebody who is going to be able to make a difference. What would your policy mm-hmm. be? <laughs> I mean, uh, the, the policy would, I think it would be, before it be, becomes a policy, I think it would become, I would start with this, the state of mind, right? So I look at the the likes of Laduma, Laduma Ngokolo, who is the, the founder and the designer from Akosa, right? I look at also Nasko Makamo, and I look at how they are, they are brands or they, they are, um, their expression is rooted in Africanism, right? And Africanism also being um, at the forefront of where they come from. And I look at how the, the way in which they think allows them to move in the ways that they move. So when you speak Africa, right, you have the sense of being and knowing what the intention is or knowing how to move. So I would say that is the first thing that has to happen. Um, and I say that because for me in the beginning, I thought that Africa was Miriam Makeba's Pata Pata, right? And then only to find out that shucks. There's actually other musicians. There's the likes of Alifa Kassore, there's the likes of Tony Allens, there's the likes of Kine Lam, there's your Omo Sangeres. There's so much about Africa and I needed to know what it is really I am speaking about. So that understanding fueled my passion to really want to be at the forefront or part of the decision makers or the change makers rather who are putting Africa on the on, on its you know putting Africa on its rightful throne, and so the policy again um, that I would in moving this statement further is that I would include like-minded people who understand the importance really of being about Africa, and you can only really understand what being about Africa is about when you understand where or where you at at a point of understanding what being about yourself is so self-awareness is also very very important i'm a Tswana girl right but i have such a huge fascination in the language that they speak in guinea-bissau for example right so i don't just hold africa to just the small town that i'm from or the small place that i'm from so understanding and being open really to who else is there in the world or in africa rather it fosters or it creates opportunity for collaboration and because collaboration is possible and the importance of collaboration allows us then to put in place these policies that um, allow us to sort of like contribute to the to the rise of the black economy one and also contribute to the rise of the artistic economy which i think that's something to be explored so offensive just in closing you know i have um two additional questions that i wanted to ask you so the first thing is around during covid we really saw um the digitization of music really going into the next level you know um it's i think it's safe to say that that covid put african music in such a place that everybody didn't know what they were doing but online music through what was going on in tiktok the ta- the challenges the dancing all of that or and african music being the backdrop and the soundtrack of that it's really it really like rocketed forward um what we're seeing now with classical music right um and the whole digitization of it i know you've spoken a lot about performances and and all of that stuff for you are you looking at um putting out having any original works putting out and what are your thoughts around the digitization of classical music in order to be able to bring more people into it um i mean you know with especially with COVID, it had two ripple effects right so the first one was it actually created of course a stint in the classical music space where a lot of classical 
music, symphony orchestras, let me say, it's either they closed down or their opera houses um, had to close down because obviously costs and maintenance and all that. And then we saw such other orchestras that looked at that as an opportunity and then we were looking at or seeing digital um, symphonies and digital, you know, orchestras forming with the likes of one being rather the, the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. So innovation really had a lot to play in terms of vision casting for where the orchestra really is going into where people don't have to experience music in a physical space. Now there's a metaverse that can be created, which which can be similar to how a person would essentially be sitting in a theater space or in a theater chair and consuming the, the, the art, right? So that for me was a vision caster to show where essentially we are leading into in terms of music, especially the classical music space where we are able now to look at the prospect of creating a metaverse where we, cre- we can create a Sydney opera house literally in the back of, of, of our houses or in our lounges because of what technology has shown us the possibility of. So my approach really, I would say, is in the same way as in pop and urban music, they treat music like such a phenomenal experience. So even in how you experience the sound from the, the sonic point of view, it's so intentional, right? You have different plugins or different engineering softwares that allow you to feel as though you are in there with the artist. So that is some of or one of the things that I would like to introduce in the music that I do, which is quite an urban approach because in classical music, that is something that is experienced in, in the space that is being created. So it's only something that you experience in theater, but now you can actually take the theater with you anywhere you, you go. So you can have plug in your headsets and experience what you would normally get when listening to the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra or whatever orchestra it is that you, you, you consume. So I would say that's really where I see us going, where we are creating various realities in terms of technology, um, sonically and otherwise. And finally, Ophente, you know, everybody as an entrepreneur, somebody who's in tech, um, you know, as a creative all around, and just as people, there are always landmarks in our lives where we're like, it may not seem like a lot to other people, but to us, it's kind of like, whew, I really needed that to just know that I'm still on the right track. Is there any moment in your life that has been like that, where something has happened that may seem so small to everybody else, but it was so big to you? Sure, yes, actually. It's something that happened recently, and I felt like um, it spoke to the power of my relentless mind, right? And again, the the, 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 the power of the unspoken word, or things that are really spiritual. So I, I believe it was about two and a half weeks ago, where I was on Instagram and I got a notification that Solange Knowles liked two of my posts um, on Instagram. One was, actually, no, both posts were of me conducting. And that for me, if anything, was an affirmation to say that there's a Solange Knowles who I look up to, right? And who's an amazing musician, storyteller, and all-around just creative genius who is looking at offensive species content for whichever reason. So that affirmed me in my ways to say that, you know what, offense actually keep going. You know, all these dreams that you may think, oh, this is big. This is this. I don't think someone would actually understand this, this kind of dream. So let me just sort of like tone it down. That for me was saying, listen, we are going full throttle with that, um, with, with, with the all of the dreams that you actually want to come to fruition. So, yeah, that's something that I, I, I remember taking five screenshots at the same time of, of, of that because it was really something special for me. 
Offensive Pizza, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Africa Whisperer. Honestly, you have given um, such insight into the classical music world and you've given it from an African perspective and as somebody who's, even though you're, you're making great strides, you're also finding your own voice. So um, we just really are just so glad that you were able to join us on this episode and looking forward to more awesome things from you. Thank you so much, Offensive. You remind all of us that it's okay to yeah. dream. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Africa Whisperer. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with my esteemed guest. Please, if you want to find out anything more about the podcast, go to theafricawhisperer.com where you can find out about the team that helps put this production together, my amazing guests that we have each and every week, as well as send any feedback that you might have by emailing hello at theafricawhisperer.com. Also, remember to follow me on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter as Lee Kasumba. Catch you next time. Thanks.